Welcome to the Sendcast. My name is Dale Pickles. I'm the Managing Director of B Squared and I'm the host of the Sendcast. We are here to help improve knowledge around SEND in a way that fits in with very busy lives. We created the Sendcast to help make schools more inclusive, to help teachers be teachers of SEND and to help support staff be more aware of SEND. The Sendcast is also a great way to get the same consistent message to schools and parents. Every week on the Sendcast, we have a different guest that has come along to talk about an area they are passionate about. And this week, Joanna Grace returns once again to talk about what she would change in schools from the point of view of an autistic adult. And if you don't know Joanna, Joanna Grace is a sensory engagement and inclusion specialist. The Sendcast is created and produced by us here at B-Squared. We help schools show the small steps of progress pupils with SEND make. If you cannot show progress, we are here to help. Over the last few years, we have created this podcast. And we've also created Training for Education, our online CPD platform that is easy to access, affordable and always available. Training for Education started a couple of years ago with a virtual SEND conference, but now includes a range of training courses as well as our conferences. You can find out about everything we do on the B-Squared website, which is www.bsquared.co.uk. You can book a free online meeting with us to take you through any of our products or answer any of the questions you have. If you're interested in the virtual Send conference, at the end of the episode, I'll be sharing an exclusive Sendcast discount code, so keep listening. Let's get on with the podcast. In this week's show, Joe Grace is back and answering the question, as an autistic adult, if you were at school now, what would you want teachers to know? Joe is a sensory engagement inclusion specialist, doctoral researcher, author, trainer, TEDx speaker, and founder of the Sensory Projects. Joe has worked with people with learning disabilities and neurodivergent conditions aged from birth to 88 years old. Do you see that, Joe? I've increased it by one. <laughs> We've assumed she's had a birthday. Yes. Welcome to the show, Joe. <laughs> It's good to be back. We obviously can't go back in time and change things, but hopefully we can use our experiences to improve the experience for pupils currently in school. So you went through school. I did. But you weren't at the time diagnosed. No, many um, women of my age were not diagnosed when they were at school. Um, So you kind of didn't find out you were autistic till later. Uh, And then looking back, you can probably reflect on all the things you struggled with and how that was autism yeah yeah so I I did sort of know because I read a magazine article when I was 11 that described what autism was using a very deficit-based model and I was I was aware that I wasn't like the other children and I read that magazine article and I thought oh right so that's what's wrong with me but I wasn't professionally identified until I was 36 And I quite often get asked, do you wish that you'd been diagnosed when you were in school? And it's a bit of an odd question, because if I had been diagnosed when I was in school, I would have been diagnosed in a a time with a very different understanding of autism. And even with that diagnosis, it probably wouldn't have been that useful. So a, a more accurate question is, would I want somebody who was like little me, but in the current system would I want them diagnosed and I would because our understanding is much better although I imagine that the little me of you know in 10 years time would get an even better run of things because most of our understanding still is to do with the male presentation of autism and not what it is for girls so yeah it's interesting it is yeah when you think back and I remember my mum years ago when everything was black and white she went to work in a school for autistic pupils and she got the job because she was the only person who had met someone who was autistic (laughs) oh wouldn't that be great if that was the qualifications now so in fact that was much before we went to school and I think back when I was at school and now with my much more knowledgeable hat on I can maybe sit there and go perhaps there were some children in my class class who were on the spectrum but it wasn't hugely impactful but I think it would you'd have to be I don't want to say the word severely autistic I want to say the word 
hugely impacted by your autism and not able to cope, there would have been a diagnosis. But if you were able to cope, you would have just been seen as naughty, troublesome, um, away with affair, or some other term to describe a child who's not performing as they should. Yeah, performing as expected. Yeah. And you mentioned that boys presentation of autism. And I've got a nephew who does the non-boys presentation. It is that the boys is typically the disruptive. That's when we say boys presentation, we're talking a disruptive person. I heard somebody say once, they said, boys cause a problem for other people and girls cause a problem for themselves. And that's obviously wrong and it's too broad brush, but I could understand why they said it. And what typically gets picked up on, you know, autism gets identified in little children when they produce behavior that you weren't expecting that seems out of the ordinary. And it does not get identified when the the behavior that they are producing is a sort of obsessive, perfect mimicry of the social world they see around them. And also within education, we spot it when it conflicts with the education that we are offering. So when the way that somebody's experiencing the classroom makes it hard for them to access their learning, then we spot it and we go, hmm, you know, something different here, you must be autistic. But when you have a mind that's very keen on rules and very strong on right and wrong, good and bad, and you make sure that you are good all the time and you line up when you're told to line up and sit down when you're told to sit down and keep quiet when you're told to keep quiet, your condition matches perfectly with the education environment. I was an ideal student. I was very quiet. I always did my work. I got the top grades in my class. You know, I'm good at maths, so I fulfill that stereotype of autism. And you could look at me then and indeed look at whoever little me now is and say, well, that's great. You don't need any help. And I think that it depends what your aspirations are for the children in your class. If your aspirations for the children in your class are that they learn the curriculum, then that's true. I didn't need any help. And that's not a bad aspiration to have. But if your aspirations for the children in your class are that you prepare them for life and that, you know, they would be happy and healthy and emotionally secure and all of those things, then I would have loved a bit of help earlier on. And it's really hard to to say it for yourself. So I, I, I can't wish my life different because I like where my life is now. And if I went back and removed difficult things, I would also remove the insight that those experiences gave me. And that's all very valuable to me now. But would I wish it on another person? Absolutely not. You know, it would be a cruel thing to wish on somebody else. So a really clear example would be my social skills as a small person, which were, according to a sort of normal model of how you socialise, very lacking. So in my playgroup, I didn't play with the toys. I stood in the corner. And the playgroup teacher flagged me up to my mum as like, there's something wrong with this one. It doesn't, it doesn't play (laughs) because I just stood there. And then at my next school, I did what would now be recognised as stimming. So I used to stand in the playground and swing my arms in circles repeatedly. And again, I didn't interact with other children and they couldn't interact with me because my arms were spinning. So like if you'd come near me, you'd have got swiped by a flailing limb. And then the next school, because I went to lots of schools, I used to hide in the toilet cubicles all through my playtimes. And as I got on to secondary school, I, I still hid in toilet cubicles and I would walk around the outer perimeter of the school, you know, really far away from the other children. And so I didn't have friends and social groups and if you'd been looking at me as a teacher and you'd just done a cursory glance, you would have gone, Jo's a quiet child. She's content on her own. She doesn't need friends. And, and that would be it. And I was a quiet child and I was content on my own. But I used to see the other children having friends. And I, I used to watch And I actually, I I kept a diary when I was seven years old and it wasn't a diary of, you know, I did this at school today. 
I used to draw a picture every day. And it was just a tiny, tiny little book. It's like smaller than a postcard. And I used to draw these tiny little pen pictures with like a black ink pen, not of what I'd done that day, but what I would have done that day if I'd had a friend. So I would draw a little picture me and this little picture of this imaginary friend and what my day would have been if they'd been in it. And so I definitely did want a friend. But I didn't make a friend for myself, you know, of my own accord without help from somebody else until I was 17, I don't think. Wow. And so something that other people can just do, because I used to stand, I used to literally, that that school where they said she just stands there, she doesn't play. I was literally standing there watching, thinking, how are they doing that? Well, how does that, because I could see that they were, you know, so-and-so had got so-and-so to talk to. And, and so-and-so was playing with that person yesterday, but playing with this person before. And that's actually, that's quite a girly autistic thing to do because I was fascinated by the social world I saw around me. And I was studying it like, like a tiny David Attenborough, like, hmm, how are these people? How did, but I couldn't figure it out. I couldn't figure out how they were suddenly being friends with each other. And and it just seemed random to me. And I didn't understand why nobody was just suddenly being friends with me. Like maybe if I stand here long enough, it will be my turn and, and some of these people will be my friends. But but that doesn't happen. And I figured it out. So you've interviewed me before about sensory stories. And there are many reasons why I'm a massive fan of sensory stories, but I'm also a massive fan of stories. Because the way that I first figured out how to make a friend was by telling a story. I realised that when I tell the story, I grew up on a boat. So I grew up on a boat, you know. I grew up on a concrete boat. It pops up a lot. If you, if you like listen to other podcasts I've been on, I mention it a lot. <laughs> I like people to know. I grew up on a concrete boat at sea. It's an unusual thing. When you say that, people are interested and oh, they yeah. talk back. And I didn't, I didn't realize that. And then at 17, I figured it out. And so you meet new people and you go, guess what? I grew up on a boat. And they go, oh, did you? Like, it was a concrete boat. And they go, oh, doesn't that sink? And you go, no, no, it doesn't. It floats. And then, there it is. That's, that's how you start to make friends with people. And it was so magic in my life. It was like, at 17, it's just like life changing. You go around like meeting all these other, going, guess what? I grew up on a boat. I grew up on a boat. I grew up. And I get teased by my friends now because they're so sick of hearing the story about how I grew up on a boat. They'll time me when I meet new people. They'll sit there with their watches and go, you lasted 20 minutes, Joe, before you told them that you grew up on a boat. But it's like, it's my magic. It's my, it's my tool for connecting. And if somebody had taken aside, you know, little seven-year-old me who was writing that diary and gone, you know, how about telling that girl over there that you grew up on a boat, she might be interested. That would have been life-changing. It's like you have concrete boat Tourette's. <laughs> yes. Just sitting there, go, I've met someone. I say the concrete boat, say the concrete boat. But I, I completely understand that. There are things where um, my mum started B Squared and kind of any visitor, we'd all sort of go, will she do the printer tour? Will she do the printer tour? Because she was so proud of the printers she's bought, which have printed a million pages and all this. And you literally go, yep, the printer tour's off. And my mum would take around all the old printers we used to have because she was so proud of them. But it was comical that, yeah, within a certain time frame, someone walking in, if they'd been in the building five to ten minutes, no matter what they were doing, a plumber, yeah, they would get the printer tour. And it was, it was, it is, I think it was just she wanted to share, but it is also she knew it was something would have a, you would have a conversation about. And I think the whole concrete boat is you'd worked out something. It's that being something different, which is interesting. Yeah. Well, and that's the thing. You see, your mum will know on instinct that to share something interesting is is the way to connect with people, to to say something that you've got common ground over. Is And I didn't know that on instinct. I needed to learn that overtly. And if somebody had taught me that skill, because what happens in schools is that you get support based on how much of a problem you cause for other people. And really, that diagnosis should count in and of itself as you know if, if a child in your class has that 
label attached to them, then there should be a question in your head, well, how can I offer support for that? And the reason that you're offering support isn't because they're necessarily struggling and disrupting your lesson. It's because you recognize that they are um, somebody who's living a minority experience. You know, they're living in a world that is set up for brains that are different to theirs. And so they're they're on a bit of a back foot and you're looking to make it a more equal experience and and recognizing that it still counts as a need whether it's being signaled through behavior or not would be something that I would wish for a small me in education now and also a recognition of what those differences are because quite often it's just understood as a behavior difference and that's not at all what it is that's just how it gets expressed yes it is and i think again just going back you touched on about you you in the toilets but i bet you in lots of schools there'll be a girl a bit like my niece who is perfectly content on her own and will spend uh break times and lunch times sitting in the library or sitting somewhere yeah, reading on her own there's too many people in the library then the librarian would talk to you it was very confusing but it was seen as oh she, yeah she's happy on her own she's not hurting anyone it's no, doing no, all this she seems really. quite happy it's like yeah she's literally hiding mm, she's, yes. you seem yeah, to be yeah. very aware and very interested in what was going on over there but i think for a lot of people it's just very confusing no i was literally hiding there was one school because i went to lots of different schools when i was little and there was one school where there was nothing in the playground apart from a big tree and i used to run out the door as quickly as possible and stand behind the tree so that the other children couldn't see me when they came out to play i was literally hiding but in reality to the teachers you were seen as not causing a problem they weren't having to come and break you up or come and fix a friendship problem or do anything if they, if they did if they left you alone all day there would have been no issues no if anything i was the opposite of a problem because i was always the child i'd like why can't you all be quiet like joe is being quiet or why haven't you finished your work like joe has finished her work which isn't a helpful thing either did you have did where parents even did your mum and dad get told oh if only we could have 30 joes it'd be amazing yes <laughs> yeah, <laughs> yeah. <laughs> that is the thing my, my daughter was we've had the same said to her is mm. oh if we could have 30 uh, we'll be lovely and you're going it would be easy. It would be easy. For them, but yeah. not for you. Yeah. Like if there were 30 years, that probably would be a lot easier. You have to. So I'm just one example of a very of a very diverse population. So it's useful to consider some of the statistics around little people like me or who I was when I was little, in that we're not um signaling a need for support but we are much more vulnerable to being victims of abuse we are much more vulnerable to being victims of sexual abuse we are much more vulnerable to um self-harm um we are much more likely to die by suicide in adulthood um there's this list you know that we're much less, there's just weird ones, like we're much less likely to receive pain medication when we're in pain, you know. So it's much more than just, I would have liked to have had a friend. You know, the consequences of having friends over a long term compared to the consequences of not having friends over a long term are significant for your emotional and mental health and all the sorts of things that those social relations you know like when you start to self-harm if you have a friend that notices the scars on your arms then you're you're more likely to be challenged before that becomes a behavior that's habitual to you and the the things at the start I think often when you look at primary school the problems that children have seem quite small or that, you know, they're like, you know, that you fell out with your friend and, or they didn't want to play football with you. But the trajectories that you set children off on then last over a lifetime. And it, like it's, it's that thing, like if you imagine a railway track starting out facing in one direction and then starting out like a slight angle to the left of it, by the time you've travelled a few miles, the destinations are like hundreds of miles apart. And that's what you're dealing with in primary school. You've got you're you're 
you're holding children safe during such formative years that the difference that you can make is enormous. So the you know the capacity within your job roles to do huge amounts of good is there, and also to like to not do it is there as well. And it's definitely um, worth a lot speaking as you know. I was the child and I am now the adult and I have probably contributed to all of the statistics that I've just quoted. Wow. And I, I can understand it. Um, experience with my daughter, watching what she's go through. And I think I find it interesting, very interesting, but also very expected that you said you found your first friend um, unaided at 17. Um, when you're in school, the only real thing you have in common with the people around you is their parents decided to have a special cuddle, special cuddle around the same year, and they chose to live in the same area. Yeah. That's it. That's what you are having in common. So you meet these people. There can be various – you might support the same football team. You might this. You might have that. You might like the same – you might like new kids on the block um, or something. But in reality, you are stuck in a class. It's because you're lived. I think when you get to that college years, when you start entering college and you are your own person and you can wear, this is who I'm wearing, this is me. When you meet someone at that point, you've chosen to meet them. Um, um, one of my real only friends outside of work um is my friend tom who i met at 17 because we had the same car <laughs> but as a group of us and all the rest have fallen away 25 years later we've all both got kids life has changed but we are still friends because it's someone that we didn't know what never went to school never went to college together nothing we met through a friend of a friend we kind of clicked it's interesting because my friends don't fall away. I hold on to my friends very tightly and that's a legacy of wanting them for so long. So when I said at the start, I can't wish my life was different, that's that's one of the things that I wouldn't change. Is like I'm still so pleased that people want to be my friends <laughs> that I'm just very happy about it. And you see it with me online. I've got so many Facebook friends and people tease me and go, oh, being friends with somebody on Facebook isn't really being friends. I was like, it counts to me. Totally counts to me. I, I think it's great. I, I'm, I'm not a Facebook stalker, um, but I, I like watching what people I know are doing in their lives. So people I grew up with, people who now live the other side of the planet. Mm. It's just a nice, it's like seeing we started off and we all kind of spread out like branches growing on a tree. It's like not, not in a competitive way, not in anything like that, but just interest. Yeah, that they have kids and they've chosen to go to go to the same place you went to, or just lots of random. I love. You said you made your first friend at seventeen when you're in college and you can sort of start going. This is this is who I am and expressing your identity. And so the question at the start of the show was, what would I want schools to know now? And I think I would love it if schools had an understanding of the autistic community and that autistic people view autism as an identity to be proud of, even for people who are autistic and face significant challenges, it's still a valuable identity to hold. And when you look at the research around the mental health of autistic people, they show it shows quite clearly that when we embrace our autistic identity and claim it as an identity, it has a really positive knock-on effect for our mental health. So listeners might notice that I've been using identity first language throughout. So I will always say autistic person rather than person with autism or somebody on the spectrum, like it's like a surfboard that I'm riding. And that's because the terminology that you can it can sound fussy when you go oh you have to say it like this and it does sound fussy because it is just words but words are a tool that we point at stuff with aren't they it's like the word moon isn't it's not about the moon it's not about the word it's about going like that object it's like the word is the finger that points to the sky and if you look at the finger and think that that's what moon is about you've totally missed the point but if you follow the direction of that word and look up and see the moon then you're like 
wow, there's the moon. And so the words that we choose to use direct our attention and direct, you know, people's understanding and the courses that people take. And by using identity first language, you're pointing towards that this is an identity. And then then you're into a landscape that's very similar to a lot of other um, minor. I, uh, there's a lot that um, the autistic community share in common with the gay community. So like a young gay child could expect to feel different from their peers, but they wouldn't know what that difference was. And a young autistic child will feel different from their peers and not know what it is. And then you become aware of what that difference is. And you also become aware that you live in a society that says that that difference is wrong or bad. So then you feel worried about being different and ashamed of being different and you try and not be different. You know, the gay child will play it straight and the autistic child might try and perform like a neurotypical child. And then you you sort of have this time of oscillating going, well, I hope I'm not this or maybe I can stop being this. And maybe if I try really hard, I won't be this. And then you get to a point where you realise I am this. And you're, and you're still down on yourself for being it because you're still listening to voices that say this is a bad thing to be. And then maybe you're exposed to examples within your community of, you know, adults or other peers who, who are this thing, whether that's gay or autistic, but have been successful in some way or are happy being it. And then you start to question, well, okay, I am this thing and maybe it's not so bad. And then somewhere down the line you go, yeah, I am this thing and it's bloody brilliant and I'm out and I'm and you're marching, you know, down the street in pride. But you also have that experience of having to come out to people. If you're if you're like in my place on the spectrum where people don't spot you straight away, you have to decide who you disclose this information to. And that's been a big decision for me professionally, because it's definitely something that I hid professionally for a good number of years before I was willing to do podcasts about it. <laughs> but if you look at that from a mental health point of view for that child and you're the professional who's got care of that child for that time, you want to be facilitating that path towards identity. You want to be, you know, you might not know if there's a gay child in your class or if there's an autistic child in your class, but you want to be showing these, you know, fantastic gay icons and these autistic role models so that if there was they feel, you know, that it's okay to be like that. And even if you don't hit the specific difference, because, you know, there might be a gay child in the class, there might be a this child, you know, there's, there's any number of minority identities that might be in your class unseen. But that celebration of difference and that holding up of, you know, differently, I was going to say differently abled, and then I cringe at that term in a different way, but like different versions of what you could be. Anything that is away from the norm is going, it's okay to not be the norm, you know, even if it's not your particular brand of difference. So long as there's that celebration of weirdness and oddness, then it's at least going, you know, it's all right to not be the thing that it looks like everybody else is. I think that thing you talked about is you obviously are identified you were different but at some point did you just sit there and go god i'm rubbish i'm useless i can't do this why can everyone you, you probably went through that journey feeling rubbish and then when you heard of the term being autistic um and that person that first person with autism i find it is so much easier to say an autistic person or when i say someone with autism it's like oh that sounds really odd but I, someone's, yeah, but I, I do prefer person for, but I think that is, is I've, I, my nephew got diagnosed with dysgraphia and his first response was, I'm not stupid. Mm. So that's the internal prejudice that we all carry. And as an autistic person, I carry that internal prejudice towards autism because it's not something that you decide. <laughs> it's something that's culturally conditioned into you. And we all carry the imprint of the you know, the society that we're in and the society that we're in says these things are bad. And so you think that it means that you're bad and that you're stupid. And um, when I when I read that article when I was 11, I was aware that I was different because I wasn't managing to do what the other children did. I was managing to do my work. But I wasn't managing to do the other stuff. And the the article was very deficit-based. And I remember thinking, oh, that's what's wrong with me. And I read it through very carefully and I thought, well, this is what I have to fix. And so I set about fixing the things that it said in the article. Um, 
And obviously, retrospectively, that would not be fixing, that would be masking. You know, I've learned to perform like a thing. And then you look into the research around masking and the consequence of masking, very unsurprisingly, has, you know, serious mental health consequences. And it's another parallel with the gay community. The person who's gay but plays it straight has lots of mental health difficulties and you would never look at that and go well being gay causes mental health difficulties you recognize that suppression of your true self causes mental health difficulties and the minute you march down the street in pride and go i'm out i'm proud those mental health difficulties suddenly you know go away not 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 so sudden not magic but but you can see that the transition is not that the mental health difficulties are associated with the condition, the mental health difficulties are associated with the hiding of who you are. And so by the time I was 17, I considered that I'd fixed myself. <laughs> so, especially when I made a friend, I was like, I've done it now. That's it, sorted. Cured, perfect, lovely, done. <laughs> fixed it, yeah. Done it. But it is, I think that thing of the quiet children, and yeah, we talk about the girls' presentation being the one, that, as you said, now that that caused problems for themselves. It quite it is quite a good description. It is they're not generally they don't want to be noticed. Uh, my daughter doesn't want any attention on her. Yeah, she wants to be invisible. Is the best way of describing it. She doesn't want anyone noticing her, so she will do all that stuff, um, and she will just fit in and she will mask and she will get home and she will have headaches and want to go lie down and is stressed just from the day of living how her teachers want her to be. Yeah. I speak as somebody who faces relatively few challenges. Um, and sometimes I, you think, well, it's, you know, it's easy for me to say such and such because I don't face very many challenges. But even for somebody like me who hasn't faced very many challenges and is, you know, I have access to language and all of the, benefits that that brings you um being autistic has it's I was going to say it's threatened my life but I don't it's not the being autistic it's the consequences of it it's the you know it's the misunderstandings around it and all of that but but if I wasn't autistic I wouldn't have been in those situations um on I was I think on three occasions um there have been times when I could have died and if you'd looked back and gone why is she dead it would have been because she was autistic um it has put me in positions where i've experienced sexual assault on numerous occasions um and that's <laughs> you know like i i'm not somebody who is totally unaware of the social world and still the lack of awareness that i have is what puts me in those positions of vulnerability and my lack of understanding as to what the response should be in particular circumstances has put me in danger. When I was pregnant two years ago, the communication differences and the pain differences experienced by autistic people and also the different ways in which we express pain um, put my baby's life at risk when he was in the womb and put my life at risk post childbirth you know so it's I'm somebody who you would go oh you know she's not that autistic it doesn't really count we're dealing with proper autism here and even for me it's that serious to have it understood and to have those differences what's interesting is is you read what autism is in terms of school and you read these things and it is, it has been just talking to you over the podcast we've recorded where you've talked about walking instead of taxis and all these things you yes, do. You're going, ones, yeah. And you're going, yeah, you don't really think of the implications of a slight difference here, how that, as you said, the divergence of that from not what you should be doing and what you do. And in 20, 20, 20 years, how that ends up. And it is. All those things you just assume, oh, it's just, oh, it, it, she'll get it later or they'll understand that later. They'll be fine. It's just a small difference. And it is at the moment a small difference. Yeah. And I, I don't want teachers to feel the responsibility for the whole world. I think the thing is to think, just imagine what an amazing positive difference you could make with just a little bit of curiosity 
and a little bit of attention. And, you know, that if you held up the picture of the, the gay icon or the autistic person who's, you know, achieving stuff, that somebody might sit there in your class and look at that. And that could be that moment where they go, you know, in the same way that article that said you're autistic and you're bad affected 11 year old me you could have the opposite effect by showing those role models and and providing exposure to these communities and there is a really strong thriving autistic community that has autistic art and autistic culture and you know all these lovely gorgeous things in it to explore that you can explore it doesn't have to be like a PSHE lesson about learning dis- differences or learning disabilities. You could do it in an art lesson. You could do it in a drama lesson. You you could, you've got these opportunities to showcase these things. And in doing that, you you could be making these big life changing differences to the children in your. That sounds really cheesy, but <laughs> you know what I mean. It's like it's a positive thing. But sometimes you will have a child in your class who could be nine years old who's literally going, life is hard. I'm going to simplify it to life is hard. And then you do a session and you mention, I don't know, Daniel Radcliffe, and you go, he's dyslexic. And you go, what's that? Or you mention Elon Musk, who's had, I think it's ADHD, or you mention whoever, and you're going, well, what's that? And you could just explain what it is. And this person sitting in the back of the class might be just going, oh. Or just, can you tell me more about that? And they put their hand up and you're like, oh yeah. And you're going, ah, somebody's, and it is, that's the thing is as an adult, you're quite aware of your differences because we've learned so much and you're sitting there going, well, they can do that. And I'm an adult and I can't. And you kind of are much more aware of what personally I'm, I quite, I'm quite comparative. I look at things again and go, what's that doing that? Why we're not, I, I look at that. And it generally it might be me worrying that I'm not fitting in. So I just compare constantly um but i think as children you just think this is the way the world is and i think there are i think parents who do not realize they are autistic have children who are autistic and their children complaining about i can't do this and the adults going it's just no one can do that it's the world it is not realizing that their child is autistic and then going spot their own neurodivergence after their children's diagnosis don't they I think I think um going back to our start question what would I want schools to understand I think one of the big ones there and it sort of ties in with a lot that we've been saying is the differences in emotional processing because when we were at school um (laughs) I'm grouping you as my age because I think we established that before and you referenced what did you reference at the start boy zone which is definitely no new kids on the block block. oh there you go it's definitely something (laughs) from our from our generation um when we were at school our the education environment's understanding of how much our mental health needed supporting was very little I would have said non-existent I remember people being bullied. I mean, I, myself included, and I don't remember anything being done about it other than like sometimes a, you know, play nicely together type thing. Whereas my little boy is at a school and bullying doesn't happen. You know, it, I mean, it does. It'll happen on day one and straight away, those children will be brought in, a, you know, a sensible conversation will be had with them the difficulties that they're having with each other will be dealt with. It'll all be taken incredibly seriously. And as a consequence, his generation have an emotional understanding of one another that is <laughs> it's basically level with us now. You know, it's really sophisticated compared, definitely way, way in advance of anything that our generation would have come up with when they were sort of six or seven. And so we, our children get to go to school in a time when we understand emotional well-being and when emotional well-being is something that we proactively support in schools through the curriculum. But there isn't a recognition that neurodivergent emotional processing is different, fundamentally different. You know, in your brain, it's a different type of thing. Um, And we don't have the mental health and emotional health understanding of how to support autistic mental health in the way that we do neurotypical mental health because the mental health research that's been done that all of our lovely work that we do in schools is based on so a great example for this would be mindfulness which 
like when we were at school was just something hippies did at festivals you know it wasn't a thing it was it was along with crystal healing and angel therapy and all of the others that are perfectly valid if if you if they're useful to you but you know mindfulness now is cold hard science oxford university have a research department that study mindfulness elizabeth blackburn's team won the nobel prize for their work into mindfulness and telomere decay it's rock solid science now and it is science that is done on neurotypical brains and it's not just that autistic people don't feature because um, we're a minority population and so we don't occur much within that research. It's that if they um, take a sample of population in order to do those studies, they then remove from that sample autistic people. So we are actively excluded from that work. And so what we know about the benefits of mindfulness is the benefits of mindfulness to neurotypical brains. And there is emergent work that shows that it might well be very different for autistic brains. And there's the stuff that shows that it could even be harmful. So you have a mental health strategy that is really good, genuinely brilliant, but it is not for everybody. And the support that we're putting for mental health into schools is aimed at neurotypical children. And then you sort of get a double blow because if you are, say you're the autistic um, young child who's experiencing anxiety, Mindfulness is a fantastic answer to anxiety for a neurotypical person. So if you're a neurotypical child and you're feeling anxious, somebody will teach you to be mindful and that will help with your anxiety. You've learned a skill. You feel the achievement of learning that skill. Using the skill that you've learned, you address your own problem that you were experiencing. You solve that problem. So as well as solving your anxiety, you also get this sense of achievement through mastering this new skill and you get a sense of resilience in that I have a tool that I can use to deal with this in the future. If you are the autistic child experiencing anxiety and you get taught to be mindful, there's a very good chance that you'll fail at being mindful. So you'll feel bad for not being able to do the thing that you were taught. You will then continue to feel anxious and you'll feel like a second level of badness in that you could have escaped this anxiety if you just tried harder at learning the thing that you were taught. And, and so you don't get the resolve. You get a sense of failure and then like a repeated sense of failure and a sense of even less resilience because you can't, you can't learn the things that you need to learn in order to be able to become a resilient person. And so it spirals down very quickly if you offer children strategies that don't fit their neurotype. And it is, I think there are certain things that I, I know have caused me much distress. And I've and I think it might be the fact that for neurotypical people, that's a perfectly good strategy. For me, it's just caused me more stress and anger and almost resenting the person who's trying to get me to do that. And I know I love the fact that for your children, there is no bullying in schools. Every school is different. Well, and I, I'm, and I'm I, sure I've got a rose-tinted view of it, but they they do it really well. And I think I think primary schools, it's pretty good. I think when it goes to that secondary school, I think the parents do have less impact on those children. There's a whole new world of children that you can't kind of police because you don't know. It, I think secondary school is where it all starts to get very hard and also the hormones come in. Um, and that's, I think, really where often autistic children sit there going, I really don't fit in here. Um, I, I think that, but one of the things I always remember some schools try and do is their way of um, a bull, not, not having bullies is it's everyone should play with everyone type thing. And you don't want to split them up and things like that. And it's like, but literally this person is causing me emotional damage. <laughs> it's really affecting my mental health. And your answer is to, well, you should just play with them more. Things like that make really, for me, make no sense because it's I, I can get a real block on certain things. And um, when I was at college, someone did something to me and I literally just went, you're out of my life. And even though I was in them for nearly every lesson for my entire college time, I never talked to them again. It was Don't just a complete block. <laughs> <laughs> but it is, it, for me, doing that was just easier. Yeah. It was literally like, I, I, I literally almost cut that person out of my life. I think you're right to recognise that it quite often gets harder at secondary. Um, and the 
onslaught of teenage hormones. Autism is a social and communication difference. And those hormones are all to do with socialising. And so it's no surprise that they don't mix well with the autistic experience. A very few autistic people. I, I, I don't think I've met an autistic person that thought, yeah, teenage years. They, you don't meet people generally that think that. Do you just occasionally, those people who school days were the best days of their life. But no, those don't mix well. And I think one of the problems that I see quite often is that as children increase in that social awareness, oh, sorry, something blinged, we won a prize, um, they, their capacity to deal with the environment around them seems to reduce. So I'll, I'll hear from parents, you know, he was okay at school last year, but he's not able to go in this year, or she was fine until year eight, and then she would, she started to refuse to go in. And the understanding is that the school environment is the same, you know, it's still the same children around them. It's still the same expectations and lessons. So they should still be able to do it because they were able to do it before. So they should be able to do it now. And that's missing the impact of those hormones and that increased awareness. And because as your as that awareness increases, the pressure that was around you before is bigger because you can see it more. It's like the monsters have come out from behind the curtains. I, I would literally say the least aware people probably loved secondary school. The more aware you are, the more sensitive you are to anything around you, the more you would have hated secondary. Do you think, do you think there was people that liked secondary school? Because I'm not sure that. I think there must be, because sometimes my, my daughter will sit there and go, they just, it almost like they're Teflon. They're just coated in this material that nothing impacts them. And yet other children just struggle all the way through secondary. And I don't know if it is there are those with a conscience and those without. I, I, I literally, I can't work it out, but there is just, and you, and um, I, I'm, I'm a big fan of Reddit and some of the clickbait articles. And it was like, where did your, and what was an interesting one, it was, um, so where did your bully end up? This was on a Reddit thing. Yeah. And what was quite shocking is most of these people's bullies or in the police force, or in a nurse, was the most common. Not saying all policemen and nurses are bullies. It was just this thread I read on Reddit. And it's people going, how is this person who bullied me now in the police? How is that possible? But it was a really interesting... Uh, so I, I was bullied a lot, but I don't think any of that was malicious. And I know that sounds like an odd thing to say, but you're, you're children and you're trying to understand the social world and part of that understanding is learning to get on and conform to a certain extent because you have to you have to follow the rules in the game otherwise the game doesn't work you have to use the same phrases that the other children use otherwise you don't share a common language so that conformity is is part of your social skills that you're learning and so when you encounter somebody like me who's not matching up to that you point it out as wrong because that's your understanding of how it's going. And it's not, it's not intended, you know, the impact that it had on my life isn't proportional to what it meant. There was no intent behind it. There was no malice. They weren't cruel or unkind people. They were children who were learning and, and they've carried on learning. And yeah, there'll be teachers and doctors and policemen and, and all of that. And they're on a similar journey to me, aren't they? And hopefully they've, you know, it, it, we we probably are all still doing, I'm sure that I'm still saying things that have a negative impact on people that I don't mean. Like as we constantly update our language to be more politically correct and as we kick against that, we're still, we're, it's the pointing at the moon thing, isn't it? We're pointing in directions that have a consequence and we're doing harm that we don't intend to do. So. Yeah, I, yeah. I, I think with, especially at secondary school, it's kind of your, you bully or you're bullied. Yeah. And yeah, there will be. Survival, you could be passing on stuff that you're, you could be processing stuff that's happening to you at home. You know, I'm privileged with an incredibly steady and loving family background. If I hadn't had that, I would be in a much worse situation. Now I wouldn't have survived the things that I've experienced. And I I used to think that was normal. You know, I have a mummy and a daddy who love each other, who have loved each other forever and who love their children. 
And I thought that was normal. And then as you get <laughs> at 17, when you begin to make friends and talk to people, you realize your your mommy and daddy aren't together. And your your daddy says he loves your mommy, but that doesn't look like how like my daddy loves my mommy. That just looks like he's picking on her. And you see all these different things and you realize that actually my situation is incredibly rare. And, and now as an adult, you've got to try and replicate that. Like, oh, my goodness, how am I going to have? And I haven't managed to do it. I'm still trying. But like, don't be be Joe Grace. Don't be your parents. Uh, I would prefer. Would it, they, what were they? They got married out of university and they've been happily married ever since. So I've, I'm on my second marriage. I've missed the boat. It, 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 I think we're all on different journeys, but I think especially at secondary school, there might be one bully. And I think a lot of children down that line are going, right, I either deflect that attention to someone else. And it is, it is that deflection. And I'm trying to explain to my daughters that what, when that person is being mean to you, it's more, it's about them, not you. And it's easy for us to say that as adults who've gone through that and come out the other side, that actually when they are saying you're this, you're that, you can't do this, you can't do that. And especially when it's quite obvious to my daughters that they're that it's completely untrue and they can see it so place my daughter's going it's so obviously untrue why are they saying it it makes no sense it's because if they don't someone might pick on them or by making you feel bad it just gave them a little boost for five minutes <laughs> and then they drop down again it's, it's just so many things that my just daughter cannot pick up on yeah. And so if you were thinking about how you might spot a little me in your current landscape, if they're not causing problems in lessons and they're not, um, you know, they're doing their work and all of that, uh, justice seeking and a natural sense of right and wrong is, is a good indicator. Autistic people and autistic girls especially have got very strong views tend to have very strong views on right and wrong and what's fair and not fair um and so you might find them um <laughs> I was just I'm, I'm just remembering it as I say it though I was incredibly quiet I never caused problems for my teachers all of that um except for once and I had a teacher for a, a year at school who was later suspended from the profession because they bullied children so that they were genuinely doing wrong um, and this teacher used to pick on a particular child in my class and they would always make a spectacle of them they'd always make them stand up they'd always they'd mock them in assembly and I was sat there as my quiet little self watching this happen and thinking this is wrong this is unfair this this is bad and so I wrote a letter and explained to that teacher that they were wrong and bad and unfair and they shouldn't do these things and I you know a more socially aware child might have thought, if I write to the head teacher and tell them that they're bad, this could have consequences for me that I would not enjoy. <laughs> but I didn't see that. I saw the wrong and I called it out. And you look at, you know, people like Greta Thunberg, it's, she's not that environmental campaigner in spite of being autistic. She's that environmental campaigner because she is autistic. She saw the wrong and she called it out and she'll say that to power, to anybody, because top in her mind is that this is right and this is wrong. This is good and this is bad. And I don't care how old you are or how important you are. That's wrong. And she'll say it. And yeah, so, so that would have been the, the signpost for me. Like, oh, the quiet child suddenly got an opinion about a thing. I think I think my daughter, someone was being told off. And at the end of it, my, my, my daughter walked up to the teacher and told her she told off the wrong person, explained the whole story. <laughs> that my, my daughter was that person in primary school. If my daughter's in your class and you want to know what happened, just ask my daughter. <laughs> she, was she would get her best friend in trouble if that was the right person to get in trouble. Hmm. Yeah, yeah, that's a good spot. It was, uh, it's fast, it's fast, but it is, it is. But the problem is, is that person who's literally the best child in your class because they're quiet, they get on with their work. Um, they might even help others around, they might do all this amazing stuff. They'll tell you who's being naughty and who's not. They're also struggling, <laughs> they could be struggling underneath all of that. Yeah, yeah. Struggling is the word. They could be literally to your going, oh, it's such a nice day. She's a, she's a blessing to have in the class and all this lot. But underneath, this child is struggling 
with could could be not is could be struggling with lots of different things um where you have a boy who isn't doing the work and is causing disruption making things always having fun just causing constant disruption could be struggling with the exact same things yeah the difference in neurotype is a genuine thing whether it's being displayed or not it's a brain difference there's differences in the wiring of the brain there's differences in how the brain functions there's differences in pain registry there's differences in emotional processing all of these things but i'm imagining the teacher in this class you know to be able to adequately support a child you, but you basically need to be their parent, don't you? And you need to know all the stuff that that parent knows and you need to have known them for their whole life. And you're not just trying to do that for one child. You've got like 35. It's an impossible, impossible job. And you can't you can't physically do all the things and you can't get it right for all the children. And that you don't isn't a sign of failure. That's just a reality of the job. The thing to focus on is how much impact a bit of awareness can have you know, listening to autistic voices like you're doing on this podcast, you know, being aware of the autistic community, you'll just pick up a little insight here or there. And the having of that insight will make an impact. It'll have a ripple effect through the lives of the children in your class. And I'll just do a signpost to I've got some free, free training on YouTube for Senkos. It's called the seven minute Senko. And it's just little um, short video clips that look at some of the key differences for autistic children and how you might address those in a classroom landscape. So if you're curious to learn a bit more, that's there. I think Dale's got the links to it. I've got the links. They'll be in the show notes. So you better get hold of that. And I think one of the things, again, just talk about is we're of a generation where autism wasn't in the classroom or it wasn't aware of it. It didn't used to exist in my child. day. Back in my day, oh no, oh, none of them around. It's a modern thing. Something's causing it. Yes, <laughs> no, no, don't say vaccine. Don't say vaccine. Um, oh God, right. don't say vaccine. No, <laughs> not right. We'll ignore the whole vaccine. Pretend I didn't say vaccine because it's nothing to do with the vaccine. Um, where I was going is for our generation and older, autism could be seen as a bad, dirty, negative my life my child's life is over word yeah so if you do have to talk to a parent because you're concerned their child might be autistic get those role models out again point out to the people in our generation who are autistic and are changing the world because people have um they people have their own understanding and it's not necessarily what you mean by it and think about your phrasing it's that pointing to the moon thing again tiny differences in language can make a huge difference in how those things are heard the really good example of this is there's a campaign at the moment to try and stop the medical profession describing a risk of down syndrome in pregnancy to describing a chance of down syndrome in pregnancy and you think those two words basically mean the same thing but one implies that it's a negative thing and one implies that it's a sort of statistical thing and the way that you phrase those messages I, I have people who say I don't want to attach a label to my daughter you know I think she might be autistic but I don't want to have I don't want her to have a label this label is a you know a negative thing and I don't want that to drag her down like the labeling doesn't change who the person is and actually if you don't get the right label you end up with a load of other labels you know so another one of those statistics is a lot of um, autistic women like myself who didn't get diagnosed have through life acquired a load of mental health diagnoses some and I am one of these women some of those diagnoses are mental health conditions that I had as a consequence of the pressures of being autistic in a neurotypical world but others are just a misidentification of a very normal part of being autistic. So one of the common features in autistic emotional processing is to experience shutdown or meltdown. And I experienced shutdown quite regularly. And when I went to the doctors and went, I'm having this feeling, it's a weird feeling. They went, oh, you're depressed. And I thought, oh, okay, I'm depressed. And so you go away with an understanding of yourself as a depressed person. And then you look at what you're supposed to do as a depressed person and they offer you medications for depressed people. And it just leads you 
down a path that isn't relevant to you because I wasn't depressed, I was autistic. And so having the label has a protective value, it's a useful tool and having an understanding of it as an identity. And that's not it as an identity because when I was given the label at 36, I spent a long time worrying what it meant when I claimed it. You know, if I stand up and say I'm autistic, am I saying that I'm different or am I saying that I'm disabled? Because I didn't feel like I had a right to claim disability because I'm a capable human being. Um, but then if you if you say this is just a difference, then you're denying the reality of some very challenged lives for whom it is very clearly a disability. And part of my journey was recognising that it's valid as both. This is a difference and a disability. And in anybody on the spectrum, it probably is there as both. You know, there are, there are instances where I am disabled by being autistic, but there are instances where I'm just different. And then that difference is a capacity and context thing. And in some places, those differences are really useful. And in other places, those same differences would be disabling. So it's it's the general conversations, isn't it? You want to be building that awareness all the time so that if you have to have those conversations and go, I think your daughter might be autistic, that that's being said against a landscape of understanding that was already there. And it's also is if you think they're autistic, and you get a diagnosis or not, it's generally not going to change if they're autistic or not. It's not that yeah, it's going to get yeah, diagnosis. It. It's like when and someone says, do very much. It's like when someone comes out and goes, I'm gay. It's like, oh, why are you suddenly gay? It's like, no, no, it's not suddenly. It's been there for a very long time. Yeah. I've just finally got the courage up to say I'm gay. That's the difference. Um, and I, yeah, I, I, I think that having, having the conversation with parents, people can avoid it. Um, we did a podcast with Vinton about changing the D's in ADHD and it changed that last one to difference. Um, and I've also mentioned about late diagnosis and there's, there was a study that I came across recently, which was um, the earlier the identification, the better the outcomes and life happiness and all those sorts of things. And there was one more thing, which again, you might sit there and go, it's true or not is I think it was, it was ADHD or autism, but it was something like people with autism have two IQs. Do we? There was like one when the, everything's right. normal. <laughs> well, no, it's, it's one when kind of when I when I'm when I'm good, this is my IQ. When I'm in this situation, this is my IQ. Is that sort of Yeah, I can see that. Yeah. And whether or not that's the best way of explaining it, but it is quite a simple way. We sit there going, yeah, when it's this, this, this. Yeah. Yeah. So, yeah, my capacity definitely is dramatically different at different times. And I I have, um, I've, I've, I've lost capacity for language on a few occasions. I've not been able to speak. And I'm somebody who can only talk a lot. Can you? Can you? Can you, Joe? Can you I talk a lot? You should shut up now, Dale. Um, but now it is that thing, and I literally went, that's a, it's a quite very simplistic way, but sometimes I think a simplistic way is quite simple in explaining a much more complex situation that, yeah, when this child, life is going right, their IQ is here. Now, if they've just come in from playtime and they lost the, foot, the boy lost a football game because the rules weren't followed and things happened and he just got told off by a teacher because he shouldn't be. And he comes in and you test his IQ, you'd probably find it is much lower because he is emotionally occupied elsewhere. Yeah, it would be true for all children, wouldn't it? Yeah, and it was, it was a quite an interesting, that for most children, they can let go of it or they're just being a bit of a sore loser. But for some children, and I'm sure you might have seen a child on the football pitch where was they were fouled and it was really quite clear, but the ref didn't give it. And they can't get over it. And they're starting to cry. And you're literally looking at them going, it's just football. Yeah. But for that child, it's, 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 un, it's unjust. And we're not talking about those footballers on TV who dive and go, oh, I should have got. No, I'm talking to <laughs> children who haven't learned about diving yet. Yeah. When they all get fouled and things like that. It's, yeah. I, I found that two IQ thing quite interesting. So, cool. So, thank you for coming to show, 
show today, Joe. Thanks for having me. Thank you for coming on the Joe Today Show. That doesn't really work. <laughs> um, as Joe mentioned, she's given me some links. We've got those seven-minute Senko videos, and they will be in the show notes, and also Joe's contact details. And you'll find the show notes wherever you listen to this podcast or on our website. So thank you for listening to the show. If you haven't subscribed already, as I always say, please do subscribe. You'll find links to subscribe across different podcast platforms on our website, and we do a new episode every week during term time. Please follow us on social media. On Twitter, we are at The Sendcast. On Facebook, The Sendcast. On Instagram, The Sendcast. And if you listen to us through iTunes or Apple Podcasts, please leave us a review and let others know what you think. And before we go, I would just like to remind you to check out the Training for Education website. You'll find a number of the guests on the Sendcast, like Joe, are speakers at one of our virtual Send conferences, or they've recorded their own training courses. Training for Education is a great way to get CPD for all staff around SEND that is effective and affordable. Visit www.trainingforeducation.com for more information. And as an exclusive gift to our Sendcast listeners, you can get 10% discount on the virtual Send conference, future or past, by using the code Sendcast10. So thank you for listening. We'll be back soon with another episode of the Sendcast. It's goodbye from me. And goodbye from me. Bye.